0: We are as a people, inherently and historically, opposed to secret society, opposed to secret oaths, opposed to secret proceedings, secret for secret proceedings. No official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve deserve to know. Welcome to Conspiracy Corner Podcast everyone, this is Abe your host, Um, it's been a minute, took a little time off, Uh, this is the new channel, so hopefully you're subscribed, if you're not subscribed, uh, please subscribe and like, and um, if you are subscribed and you know someone who is into conspiracy or paranormal or the macabre, anything like that, Um, go ahead and share it, if you will, because, uh, YouTube, I had to start a new channel. Um, basically, not starting from scratch, i seen there's eight subs from the old channel, so good to see you all. Um, but yeah, basically today, uh, I was going to go hiking, but it's snowing here in Kentucky, which is crazy. Uh. I was not expecting snow yesterday it snowed like crazy and I was like yeah I came home from work I work third and I came home I was like yeah we're not going hiking today so it worked out though because um, I got to clean on the house which was needed so the house looks really good now but uh yeah we'll get on with the show though today we're covering uh Jack the Ripper I haven't covered him yet and I wanted to cover it. It gets into conspiracy, it kind of ties in with uh, a conspiracy that a lot of people think that he was a Freemason. We'll get into that on later episodes. Today we're just covering basically the first murder of uh, Jack the Ripper. So let's set the stage for this uh, gruesome tale whitechapel the district of whitechapel lies in the heart of east end it is said it is still not as fashionable as its west end neighbors but like other once grimy and sordid boroughs in the area the blitz and years of replanning have transformed it its most prosperous air has not yet made it the most beautiful part of london but it is a long way from being the worst slum in the country, as it was in Queen Victoria's time. Then as now, it was home to a polyglot community of immigrants and cockneys whose families had lived there for centuries. Irish migrants and Polish and Jewish refugees who had fled from the Middle Europe pogroms of the 1860s lived together in general harmony. Shabby shops and houses frequented narrow streets and gave access to innumerable stinking courts. These spawned thousands of lodged lodging houses where for three pence a night a bed in a line of others could be bought. The 20th century researcher finds much to astonish the casual calls on neighbors that people would make at literally all hours of the night. Yeah, I did remember this definitely about Whitechapel, that it was like, there was no time of day. Like, day, night, early morning, it was always busy, no matter what. All shops were open. Uh, Definitely a contrast to 2021 and what's going on with everything shut down now. Let's see. Uh. Shops opened long after midnight. Public houses, which having thrown out their last customer at 3 a.m., would open again to serve liquid breakfast at 6. Many of the hovels had no cooking facilities and hot food would be brought from pie shops and the like. A regular site was the Sunday meat when there was any, being taken to the baker's to be cooked for two pence. It was a London less than three miles from the bright lights of Haymarket and Piccadilly, with the Mott's night house, or the notorious Kate Hamilton's, where five pound was the admission charge for the wealthy, entitled, clientele. The gas and electric lighting that had been in use in the streets up west since the early 1800s, had barely reached Whitechapel 80 years later. The shops and better-class houses throughout London had these luxuries, but not the dwellings in the meaner streets, where oil lamps or candles provided a dismal and sinister illumination. Street traders were everywhere, costermongers, food vendors with fried fish, Meat pies, pigs trotters, plum duff, baked potato, cat's meat, and hot wine. Yes, they ate cat. Street showmen of enormous variety proliferated. Pathetic freaks were exhibited. Albinos, dwarves, elephant men, pig-faced ladies performing monkeys. Punch and Judy, black-faced clowns, fortune-telling Bulk, bulk, bulk uh, I don't. And stilt walkers. There was street music from the Italiante hurdy gurdy to the British one-man band. So basically a freak show, man, a circus, you know. Uh, Yeah, blackface clowns back in the day. Imagine that going on now. (laughs) People would flip their shit. Nearby, the docks are created for work laborers but it was often and irregular and depended on the arrival of ships. Men were often employed by the day only. Milliners, dressmakers, furriers, timber makers, shoe binders, pastry cooks, cigar makers, seamstresses, and laundry maids worked long hours and earned very little. The vast markets at Spitalfields and Billingsgate, Supplying meat and fish gave employment, as did the enormous fruit and vegetable market at Covent Garden. But for many, there was little chance of honest work, and the teeming rookeries in such places as Clerkenwell, Westminster, the Bureau, and Whitechapel were their refuge. Most estates had the typical water tank, which was turned on for a short time each day. A rat-infested garbage tip was rarely removed and serving the whole court the ever-present all-pervading lavatory. The fact that many inhabitants of the West End could remember the last public hanging at Newgate 20 years before, before did not discourage crime. There were many areas of Whitechapel where the police would only venture in groups, and a mile further east into Dockland's notorious Ratcliffe Highway, they would not venture at all. A contemporary writer described it as, a place where crime stalked, unmolested, to tread its deadly length, was a foolhardy act that might quail the stoutest heart. Ratcliffe Highway had been the site of a series of brutal and barbaric murders in 1811. Over a period of 12 December nights, two households comprising of seven people were clubbed to death. There had been an unprecedented public outcry and a demand for more effective policing. For almost eight decades, legends circulated in the East End and the pitiless slaughters who accorded the highest, if uneviable, accolade of crime of the century. And indeed they were, until one dark night in August, 1888, when the gruesome work of a slashing knife made its claim. It's 3 a.m., the devil's hour, here in Kentucky. Perfect timing. Nice snowy weather. Um, let's get into the first murder of Jack the Ripper. John Paul quickened his step. He had never liked the place. It was familiar enough. He passed this way every day on his way to work, portering at Smithfield Market. The homeward walk was different, though. It was funny how everything changed in the dark. Buck's Row narrowed and became darker as he made his way towards Brady Street. Only faint illumination came from the unbroken line of shabby terraced houses. People were getting out of bed to go to work. Others, like dock workers and meat porters from Smithfield, were returning home. Paul paused for a moment to tie his bootlace, putting his foot against the crumbling low stone wall which guarded the embankment of the East London Railway Company. The line ran under the road and entered the tunnel, approach to Whitechapel Station. In a couple of hours, the station would be busy, but now, at 3.15 a.m., it lay silent and shuddered in the darkness. As he straightened up, a sudden chill ran down his spine, for on the other side of the street, barely visible against the yellow gas-lit interior of one of the dwellings, he could see the figure of a man crouching in the roadway besides a stable entrance. As Paul approached, the figure rose in front of him. Come and look at this woman, he said, motioning towards a bundle on the ground. A body laying prostrate on the ground was pretty unremarkable in this part of Lon- in a part of London where drinking dens were six six times more numerous than today paul looked at the woman and concluded that she was drunk let's get her on her feet he said it was a, it was difficult to get hold of the woman in the darkness and as paul reached beneath the woman's shoulders he recoiled as a warm stickiness engulfed his hand as they rolled her over the stranger let out a strangled cry look Look at her throat! Two sweeping incisions ran the width of the woman's neck and had all but severed the head. The ugly wheels cut back to the spinal cord and oozed blood which formed a crimson pool below her head. What thoughts went through the two men's minds as each nervously surveyed the other is not recorded. The skirts had been pulled high above the woman's knees, which had led her discoverer to suppose that she had been raped. Now the two men straightened her clothing and, terrified, set off in search of a constable. Three hundred yards further east in Brady Street, where a single street lamp threw fitful but comforting light, they found police constable Haynes. Had the two men gone west, they would have found the law more quickly. For P.C. Neal's beat was bringing him towards the scene of the crime. And at the moment Constable Hayne was summoned, Neal was already shining his lantern on the body of Mary Nichols. Mary Nichols, or a.k.a. Polly, as she was known to her many friends, In the area was forty-two years old. Polly had once been pretty, pretty enough to attract printer machinist William Nichols, marry him, and bear five children. But by 1881, her drinking and general slovenliness, slovenliness, she was sloven, (laughs) had resulted in him leaving her. Basically, laziness and alcoholism. A spell in Lambeth House, uh, a spell in Lambeth Workhouse, a union with a Walworth blacksmith named Drew, and a short time as a domestic servant in one of the biggest merchant's houses on Wandsworth Common, were punctuated more and more frequently by bouts of drunkenness. Eventually, she became a fugitive from the law, having stolen a muesli three pounds from her employer. The last day of August 1888, which was also to be the last day of her life, found Polly as a pathetic drab, old before her time, five front teeth missing, and with a history of vagrancy and petty crime, Polly was a female tramp A prostitute willing to sell herself for four pence it would cost to gain readmittance into the filthy lodgings at 18 Thrall Street, where she frequently stayed. Early that night, penniless, she had been turned away by the lodging housekeeper. Thrall Street, like its infamous neighbor Flower and Dean Street, had many cheap lodgings for women but terms were strictly cash in advance. Though only five foot two, Polly was tough. I'll be back. Look what a fine bonnet I've got, she told the lodging housekeeper. Was she going to pawn it? Unlikely, as it was too late, and in any case, the item would have fetched very little. Could she possibly have thought, the black straw bonnet, velvet-trimmed, though it might be, would have guaranteed her doubtful charms. The last person to have claimed to see seen Polly alive was a friend, Emily Holland, who had spoken to her around 2.30 a.m. at the corner of Whitechapel Road and Osborne Street. They often used the same Doss house. Although a pathetic character, there was something about Polly perhaps her infectious sense of humor or her gaiety in the face of problems and geniality, even in drink. Whatever the quality, it was missing tonight, and Emily was concerned about her. Tonight, Polly was so drunk she could scarcely stand, but she would not heed her friend's advice to stay with her and instead reeled off down Osborne Street. The next time Emily saw her, the bonnet was gone. The brown ulster, the brown Lindsay frock, petticoats, stays, and black wool stockings were gone, and her friend was gone. The mortal remains of Polly Nichols were identified by Emily Holland in the mortuary attached to the old Montague Street workhouse. Dr. Llewellyn who lived near Bucks Row, had performed an initial and very perfunctory examination of the body in the gutter at Bucks Row, even allowing for the fact that it was carried out in the light of four police bullseye lanterns under the steady gaze of a crowd of onlookers. It seems remarkable that the doctor failed to notice that Polly had been disemboweled. Her stomach had been hacked open and slashed many times. Several incisions ran across the abdomen, which had been repeatedly slashed and cut. The killer had used a knife, possibly with a six to eight inch blade, on her vagina. Polly's husband had not seen her for three years, and there had been little to endear her to him but one look at the mutilations moved him to murmur, I forgive you for everything, now that I have seen you like this. The newspapers of the day reported events in much more detail than their modern counterparts, and the violence and frenzy of the attack can readily be seen from this account in the star. No murder was ever more ferociously or brutally done. The knife, which must have been large and sharp, was jabbed into the deceased at the lower part of the abdomen and then drawn upwards not once, but twice. The first cut veered to the right, slitting up the groin and passed over the left hip. But the second cut went straight upward along the center of the body and reaching the breastbone. Such horrible work could only be done by the work of a maniac. Later victims bore similar injuries, upward forceful thrust, the unmistakable autograph of one assailant. The elementary bound, b- blunder on the part of the doctor and the failing to notice that the victim had been butchered, ripped from belly to throat, and the subsequent premature removal of the body by the police had had destroyed vital clues. The carelessness, or even culpable negligence at the scene of the crime was compounded by the fact that Whitechapel had no public mortuary, and the body was taken to the workhouse mortuary, where it was dealt with not by a professional, but merely a pauper inmate. Robert Munn, had stripped and washed the body before the post-mortem could be carried out. When later the question, why so little blood at the scene, was posed, it could not be answered. It was unlikely that the body had been transported there, front doors opened almost directly to the street. A carriage would have been heard and noticed. Anyway, how much body had there been? How much blood had there been? nobody knew the police had washed it away as soon as the body had been removed that's sketchy jack certainly had luck on his side people had been sleeping and indeed were lying awake within six feet of where the body still warm was found police patrols passed the spot every 30 minutes with three watchmen four policemen and more able to converge on the body in under a minute. And early morning workers moving around. How had the killer managed his task so silently? And his escape with bloody hands and clothes so completely. It was early days. Whitechapel had seen nothing yet. So there you have it. There's the first murder of Jack the Ripper. Um, pretty poly I don't know a lot of sketchy stuff there I mean definitely sounds like an inside job I think um, I've made a video on Jack the Ripper and the Masonic connections which I will try to leave as a, a clickable video at the end of this podcast so you guys can check it out to kind of get a deeper more down the rabbit hole taste of what we're dealing with but yeah i mean a gigantic pool of blood should have been at the scene if the crime was committed there and it wasn't found there i definitely think it's odd the police washing away the blood kind of like how they washed away a message that was scrawled at a later scene which we'll probably cover um i don't know whole thing's crazy they they definitely said to as much study as i've studied into jack the ripper and stuff that perhaps he could have had like a uh a medical background perhaps he was a doctor you know um I don't know. I just wanted to kind of lay out. This is definitely going to be a series. I kind of wanted to lay out just the first murder on this episode. Um, Kind of give you guys something to chew on for a second. Get you guys the gears working. Um, It's good to be back. I'm glad to be back. I had to take a little time off. Honestly, Just I kind of got down in the dumps when my old channel got shut down. and I don't know. I just... I feel like this is something I enjoy doing, and this is what I should be doing, you know. And I guess don't give up is what I'm saying, you know. And honestly, wear it as a badge of honor, you know, because it's not me. It's it's everyone else is getting censored on platforms, you know, and that's the attitude that they've shared while they're they're talking during their podcast and stuff is they're pretty much like, look, wear it as a badge of honor. Um, if you're not getting shut down, you're not putting out enough truth and you're not doing something right. If you are getting shut down, you're doing the right thing. You're saying too much and they don't like that. Um, so, yeah, I, I kind of wear it as a badge of honor at this point. I'm glad to be back, though. There's more episodes to come. i um. For new listeners, I usually, it depends on honestly how I feel, I do not, I've had people say, hey, why don't you set up once a week a day that you uh, do a podcast? My thing is, is I would be limiting myself. Um, I added a new playlist on the channel. There's over 105 old podcast episodes if you want to check it out. It's on every subject from random conspiracies to ufology paranormal uh religion ancient mythology we we delve into everything here so uh check it out if you want to check out the older episodes um thank you all for listening i hope you all have a good day and see you later we are as a people currently and historically.